Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Mastermind.fm. In this episode, we'll be talking about generative art, and with me I have two friends, first of all, and collectors of generative art, and we'll be talking about our journeys into the generative art space and why we feel so passionately about generative art in general and what the future prospects hold. So without further ado, enjoy the conversation with P and Tim Bain. All right, so in this episode, I've got Tim Bain and P, also goes by the name of Astam Cloud on the interwebs, and we'll be talking about generative art. So, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I'm also into generative art, both as a collector and more recently as a creator. I'm very early, so... Not saying much about that, but I'm really excited about learning more. And so for that purpose, I'd love to get your short version of your journey into generative art, probably first as a collector, and in the case of Tim Bain, also as a creator. Whoever wants to go first. I'll go ahead. So my NFT journey and my generative art journey were basically the same journey. I'd been experimenting with some generative art just that I found on Reddit through the Reddit, you know, the subreddit on generative art. And then around that same time, I started to hear about art blocks first, I think on uh, Kevin Rose podcast. And then on Twitter, this was 2021 then. Yeah, that would have been like February, March of 2021. Okay. And it took a while before I actually like purchased any art blocks or joined the discord or anything, because it just seemed, even like at those prices, wildly expensive to me. Like I, I'd never spent $500 on art before. Was it your first art purchase? Or you I mean, the first something? thing that wasn't, it was the first just like art for art's sake purchase. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I'd bought like mementos traveling and things like that, yeah. which I, you could classify as art, but it was much more about like encapsulating that memory. And I, I guess we can talk later about like, what purpose art serves in your life. But for me, it was the first time where I saw something and I'm just, you know, kind of independent of any experience I'd had previously. I was like, I want to have this, this thing because of its artistic merit. So I kind of just watched a little bit. I was trying to mint, you know, I hadn't bought any NFTs before. So I was trying to mint mobile. And, you know, even back then there was no, like Dutch auction for the art blocks curated drops. It was just sort of a free for all and you could get in if you were prepared, but I wasn't prepared, you know? So I was like mowing my lawn and trying to mint art blocks <laughs> and <laughs> missed archetypes, you know, missed synapse. And then I was like, all right, I need to, you know, dedicate some time to this. And then the first mint I successfully participated in was bubble blobby. And then it didn't mint out for like a, a little while. And I was just freaking out because I'd spent like, you know, $500 on this digital lava lamp looking thing. And it was still really fun. And I got in the discord and I was talking and then I ended up talking with the artist, uh, Jason Ting about my mint and about bubble blobby and how he made it because it was, you know, just it, as like a very, very early artist, it was mind blowing to me how he did that and then was able to minify the script to the point where he could upload it to a blockchain and 
that we could all mint, you know, unique iterations of his algorithm. That that was all very new for me. And that's how I got into generative art and specifically, you know, art blocks. Okay. And do you have any specific interest in generative art before the NFT thing showed up? Yes. Yeah. So I'd seen um, way back in high school, uh, I was part of this uh, kind of like math art club where we would just make fractals and we had a computer that you could program to make different versions of the Mandelbrot set. Mm -hmm. And so I did that and kind of was just always into fractals <laughs> and uh, had read a little bit on, uh, you know, some different blogs about different styles of cellular automata and what you could make with those. This was, you know, back before I had kids or anything. And then I had kids and just kind of like everything as happens, you know, every hobby just got nuked. And so it was just working kids. And I totally forgot about generative art for, you know, years until our blocks came along. Nice. Nice. All right. So let's pass on to P. Yeah. And, and actually real fast, I know I'm not the interviewer here, but Tinbane. Uh, oh, go ahead. Was, was that... You can ask questions and take over if you want them. Yeah, was that your for first foray into NFTs in general? Like, did you start with art, or did you start with PFPs or something else? No, it was art blocks exclusively for, yeah, probably five or six months. I honestly, I had no clue about PFPs or anything. I wish I would, you know, because I was had I been cognizant of what was going on, I uh, could have minted board apes and a bunch of other stuff that would have made me a bunch of money. But no, I mean, I was listening to the to Kevin Rose and his podcast, and he would mention some other stuff. Like, I think I bought those like bonsai trees that never made any money. Mm -hmm. That was maybe the only other <laughs> NFT I bought. But it was mostly just art blocks because that's what I liked, and I wasn't trying to sell anything, so it was just like a sunk cost for me, uh, and I didn't have that much discretionary income to spend on art. I don't know if you were that early as Tim Bain, but the prices of those earlier projects also shoot up pretty rapidly. Or was it a slow thing? Because I, I went in quite late and the prices were already like 100 plus for a Fidance and all that. So I don't know how quickly they shot up. It was pretty fast. I mean, that, that's a long topic and I, I want to hear... I want to hear how Austin or how P got got into this, but no, I mean the the for a long time art blocks, you know, like it just wouldn't a project wouldn't mint out or it mint out and it would stay around mint. It kind of was like having a Dutch auction without the Dutch auction in mm -hmm. the sense that you know the number of mints was the price discovery tool rather than the price itself, and it was fine until it seemed like Fidenza really caught on, you know. Tyler Hobbs had a big following on that generative art subreddit prior to his release. And he had a pretty big following on Tezos as well. So, you know, he was a successful artist before NFTs, um, not to the same degree, obviously, but once Fidenza came out and it was spectacular and a lot of high profile collectors were saying it was spectacular. I think that brought a lot of attention to the Artblocks platform in general. You know, it was already getting more attention just because attention was coalescing around the NFT space in general at that point, I think, and, you know, summer 21. But 
art blocks really seem to get the lion's share of those new entrants into the NFT space at that time. You know, one, one of those waves definitely like washed on art blocks mm -hmm. shores in July or so. And that's when prices just, you know, went astronomical. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and John, from speaking to other folks as well about Fidenza, from what I heard, that one was really like Tin Bane saying the one that took off. And I heard that the, the floor went to five ether pretty fast and it hung out there for a while. And then, you know, it was probably just building up demand and then it boomed. Nice. Um, but yes, that, that, that's awesome. I, I, I feel like I could talk to you guys forever about this. So I'll, I'll try to stay, stay structured uh, and tell you about my <laughs> NFT journey really quickly. Uh, for me, it starts a lot with my crypto journey. Uh, back in 2017, I met a friend of a friend who was working at Consensus, which was sort of the consulting arm of Ethereum uh, or the Ethereum Foundation. And then I learned about Ethereum and that just put me basically my whole mind share and interest turned into crypto as the bleeding edge of technology. And I had heard about, you know, crypto kitties and a few things back in 2017. Obviously, I wish I'd heard about the punks back then. I didn't know they were a thing. And then I sort of forgot about it until 2020, when that same friend had shifted his focus all over to NFTs. And again, I didn't really look into it then. But then in 2021, I started hearing about the Bored Apes. I started hearing, you know, I heard about like that, that Island Boys Fidenza song. And I was like, what, what is going on here? And I, the first, see, I feel like much more of a degen because uh, you know, I'd made a bunch of money on Ethereum uh, running up in 2020 and 2021. So I was feeling like, you know, I couldn't miss type of a thing. And I bought the top of like Avid Lines, uh, which was a huge miss. If anyone is familiar with that project, it's it, nothing wrong with a project, but it was everything was hyped back then. This was probably yeah. August, like when the art blocks hype was going. And so then I was like, okay, I need to understand this art stuff better. And I didn't really appreciate the illiquidity of the art nfts compared to some of these other ones um so i bought a, a couple of mutant apes after ape fest because things had cooled off and i thought okay you know let, let me see how this goes and then i heard kevin rose for the first time on a tim ferris podcast and started listening to his modern finance and proof podcast and then i was gonna join the proof at the very beginning of the dutch auction but didn't and was following along and listening to the podcast and eventually i was like i need to understand this art stuff and so i started diving in and i, I am not artistic at all like not even close to you tin vein uh, i was like math science person as well but never went into the art side and so i just started i don't know it's like this gave me permission to start enjoying art because it was analytical and financialized a bit and felt a little bit more left brain than traditional and i've just started really enjoying it and you know we can we can go from there but i think the first thing i bought was probably a chromie squiggle uh i can't even remember nice. which one but nice. that seemed like after being burned a few times it seemed like a safe bet so i think i went with that one first the safest bet i mean if you're going to bet on an nft there is i can get into that thesis later but there is no safer nft so your beginner's mind knew the truth yeah n nothing is safe but i I don't know. It's almost like my risk tolerance has been adjusted because I've been in crypto for so long. It's like, it feels <laughs> safe. 
<laughs> that's that's so true it's like your receptors just get blown out for what like actual risk in finance is <laughs> yeah if you tell a normal person in the street yeah these squiggly lines they're selling i think like today there's like twenty thousand dollars and people would be like what like you could, yeah that's a down payment for a house in most places you know <laughs> it's like yeah it's so true because yeah. people come into crypto and they're like, ooh, six percent in DeFi, like cutting edge. <laughs> I'm break breaking the system here. It's like now nah, ten thousand X on a squiggly rainbow. That's that's the only thing that'll do it for me now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so I guess I'd also spend a few words on my experience, because I think I've never spoken about it on the podcast. And uh, basically I started collecting uh, a generative art after joining proof and i rem- i've been following kevin rose for many years because i come from the web to space myself as a business owner so i've been following kevin and gary v and all those personalities for many years but when i saw him doing nfts i didn't quite understand how he had transitioned to to art and nfts so i was a bit hesitant in whether he actually knew what he was talking about or whether he was just transitioning from web two into something else and he not he just using leveraging his his network basically. And to be honest, like the first episodes I had listened to at the time felt a bit too artsy or like projects that were not like they didn't have these uh, public very obvious uh, attraction like uh Fidanzas and Project, even Chrome and Squiggles, I would classify as one which most people would like visually. Um, so I joined Proof uh, in February, I think. And that's when I started seeing the conversations with, uh, with the artists. And uh, one of you mentioned, yeah, Timbing, you made kind of a mistake in the, in the minting. Like you chose one that wasn't a winner, but you spoke to the artists and it was very interesting. And for me, actually in New York for NFT NYC, I went to a sub conference of sorts, token art. And the opportunity to meet the artists was really mind blowing because by that time I had been following these artists for a few months. And I mean, just the, the ability to go there and spend 30 minutes, an hour speaking to this artist which has already been so successful and finding out that they're very interesting people to me was something that really got me intrigued into digging deeper, right? These were not like the, I mean, there are many founders in this space who made a lot of money, had successful projects, but I wouldn't personally want to hang out with them. Whereas the, the generative artists, they tended to be kind of nerdy in the same way, but also very cool. And I kind of identified with that. And I've never been into art because I made the mistake of equating art to painting and drawing earlier on in my school years. And somehow I closed that door to myself. But I've always recognized a certain degree of creativity in myself, especially in writing. That was my medium for many years. But now I think that NFT has led me through this second chance of creating something visual. And that's why I've gotten into learning how to code 
these generative art pieces. And having the background in code helped me, of course. I don't know how far I'll, I'll go, but I want to give it a good go. And Tim Bain, for example, has been one of my inspirations uh, because you're you're someone I know has also started fairly recently and kind of that gives you hope, no, that maybe I can also make it if everyone is starting now and they're creating nice nice things, then why not? <laughs> oh man. But by, by the time I start creating generative art, you guys are gonna be so good. It's like the the field is gonna be too competitive. <laughs> well we'll need to come on your podcast to promote our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I, I get the impression that a lot of artists started fairly recently. You know, the field is very, very young. John, do you mind if I ask? I, I'd like to ask a follow-up question. You, mm-hmm. you mentioned, you said you lost that door to yourself in the sense that... I locked the door, yeah. You, you just didn't want to go there in terms of like, I'm, I'm not a drawing and painting person, so I'm not an art person. Is that yeah, it? Some, at some point, some teacher probably told me that I'm not good at art, right? And I said, okay, I'm not good at art. I don't, I really don't know how to draw, you know, like I'm doing stickman. That's the only thing I can do. But actually then I started because of my son, who's three years old, I'm seeing him draw and I'm like buying books to teach him how to draw. And I'm doing it with him and like, oh, I can draw a cartoon face. I can draw a car. This is something I can learn. It's not something that you only need talent for. And so I got encouraged as well. So I'm, I'm learning both the drawing, the drawing part and the generative art. Well, hopefully when generative art's taught in schools, a child who might be just drawing stick figures and a teacher might otherwise say, like, you have no talent or potential or whatever, you know, terrible language they use with kids to close those doors. Maybe they can instead say, well, you can code. Here are the instructions for coding art. And, and you know, one thing I'll mention that I realized today while listening to this generative art podcast while driving is that since I was a child, I was always motivated with creating something like creating a product. So like I love the languages because I could write essays and invent stories that I would like have an end result, a story that the teacher would say that's great or that's not. And I could keep it. Whereas with math, math or maths my mom always said that it's the best subject it's like a game and i could never understand why why is so why is it so beautiful or interesting it's just solving problems for the sake of solving them and like everybody is solving the same problem and that's it you know and to me this was the missing missing part you know like we can use math but it can be individualized And we can now create vastly different outputs just because of a different number, random number, random seed, one different, sometimes mistake in the code that generates something totally different, but also beautiful. But that, that's my attraction. No, that makes sense. And I, you know, the tin main, I had a very similar experience as, as a child and I internalized it a little bit differently. Whereas I felt like I'm just not creative. I remember I had a writing teacher and, I just didn't know what I was doing wrong. And I felt like, well, at least with math and science, there are clear rules that I can follow and get to an answer. Whereas this, I I had no idea. And over time, I realized that's not the case. I mean, I have, you know, I I could barely draw a stick figure right now, uh, but there's this appeal of generative art where it's sort of like, oh, all those like skills and thinking and systems and how to like 
build up systems and tweak edge cases like that actually seems like like a more natural progression into the visual aspect that you see in generative art and i'm sure it'll be the case with audio and, and other things that and who knows what else will emerge as time goes on but that same principle of using that creativity from a more almost like an engineering standpoint but then to create something aesthetically beautiful and now i got into art heavily and i'm reading art history which i never did or had any inclination to do before and you see this mention of mathematical concepts in traditional art, right? The big revolutions in art, for example, with the use of uh, perspective, I think the artist was Brunelleschi, an Italian guy who first made the use of perspective. And that is pretty mathematical concept applied to, to painting, right? And that creates a totally new way of painting. So it's not something new as such either. It, throughout history, John, it's you identified, I mean, during the Renaissance in Italy, when there were these explosions in mathematical discovery contemporaneously with these explosions in artistic discovery, like those masters were often the same, you know, Da Vinci, these people were the same individuals making, it wasn't siloed like it is now mm -hmm. where you're an art person or a math person. And us, the one thing that you said is that NFTs gave you the permission to come back into art. And I, and I, we see this a lot, like in the NFT space, that this is another renaissance. And I think one of the reasons is because folks like you two, who have a lot of artistic potential, but maybe society's marginalized that piece of your being, NFTs allow you to bring that back in and employ your skills as technical people in an artistic pursuit. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that NFTs, you, you kind of get your foot in the door in a couple of different ways one could be just purely a financial standpoint i mean i'll be honest like i came into this looking to find ways to make money i mean you see fidenzas go a thousand x or something in like two months you know okay some, something's crazy here but also and i'm sure this is coming up but this is part of the reason why i love generative art and especially long-form generative art where you get these collections with these different traits it's like my analytical brain just loves it it's like i want to find the treasure i want to figure out what's most important and like you know be right and get it first like the money is almost an afterthought <laughs> it's like the game is almost the most fun part uh and i think that that brings you in and you can't help but notice the the art once you're there and i think you're kind of like wow this is actually really cool beyond me finding that diamond in the rough this is really evident in your in your galleries that you've created on DECA, which I was, you know, I, I like to keep abreast of everybody's galleries best I can. But in anticipation for this episode, I was looking at some of your newer ones and like your study of neon gallery. Yeah, well, actually, so, so cool. that's for me, I, I'd love to dive into some of these different things. I just haven't had the time yet, but you know, it's like what what fits together, which colors sort of mesh together. And, you know, we haven't touched on this yet, but you were mentioning Da Vinci. And it's interesting because so I'm I'm a physician by training. So I've gone uh, obviously deep into biology and I've gotten, you know, my, my focus really has been in health technology, but really the idea of like building digital tools to help us do what we're already trying to do, which I you know, I think NFTs are the flavor of that, not necessarily art, but th that's an aside. But, you know, I wonder at, from a neuroscience level, right? Like what makes art captivating? You know, it's, it's something about 
it's holding your attention. It's reminding you of things. And there's a biological basis for this. And so one of the things that I'm interested in is going deep into, okay, like which colors sort of capture attention more? What kind of motion? What are the various things you can do with digital art that you can actually trace back to neuroscience and say, okay, it kind of makes sense that people like looking at this. And, you know, I'm not trying to take the beauty away from it. I think, so first of all, we barely know anything about neuroscience. So to, to pretend like you can figure it all out is a fallacy, but there's just so many nuances and aspects to this that are interesting that I feel like I could, you know, spend my whole life diving into this and, and not even get, you know, beyond the tip of the iceberg. So there's a great book uh, by Joseph Albers on color theory, where he characterizes colors as being passive or deceiving or unstable and uses, I, I, I know nothing about neuroscience, uh, but he uses this language that it seems in this, you know, attempt to biologically decode the reactions we have would be useful language for you. Because this, to me, is language that I would use in a conversation. You know, I've been deceived by someone's words or deceived by their colors. This is a, it, it, it's a cool lexicon for describing color because it's applicable to other aspects of life, as I'm sure neuroscience would be as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it kind of comes to a question of, like, what makes art captivating? You know, and I think there are a lot of different factors. Some of them are biological. Some of them are your past experience. Some of them, you know, are the words written. Some of them are the story of the artist themselves. And I think with generative art, it's something that I'd be curious to hear you guys' take on. I don't know if it's talked about that much, but there, I think there's something about the collection itself that matters. You know, like you could take two works of generative art, and if there's one that's, say, a collection of 10, the same exact piece, one is part of a collection of 10, but one is part of a collection of a thousand. And the one that's part of a collection of a thousand, if that collection has a lot of breadth and variety to it, I would argue that that single piece is worth more because it's part of this whole, almost like a more unified whole that, that makes it interesting. But it's a feeling I get, and I'm trying to back into the logic. I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on like how you think about gen art and, and the fact that you have these collection sizes and how that alters the art for you if at all yeah for those who are not familiar maybe we can explain the difference between short form and long form art to my knowledge generative art brought this concept to the art world no i'm not sure if this has been done before the long form concept where you have a large collection and that it's all pieces are telling the same story or different aspects of the same story and that's the hard aspect to pull off many times. Yeah, I, I can take a crack at that. I'd, I'd love your thoughts too, yeah. uh, for both of you. Um, I think that there's probably somewhat of an arbitrary cutoff as to what is short form and what is long form. For me, it is around 100 pieces in the collection that it starts being long form. But the point is not really the label for me, but it's at what size does the collection become large enough that you can see quite a bit of variety. And with these recent Bright Moments drops, which uh, for people who don't know, Bright Moments is this company that does a lot of uh, in real life experiences along with NFTs. And they typically have like 10 artists and they'll do 100 pieces each for their, their drops. Um, but 
I, I feel like those are quite getting sort of on the border where it feels like a collection, um, but and there's some variety. Whereas if you go smaller, I think the pieces start looking quite similar, and then you don't feel like the piece you're getting is is quite as unique. Uh, so I don't I don't have a specific number cutoff. It's more of a feeling: is does this collection feel like it has a good breadth and uniqueness to the variety of outputs? Uh, similar similar to Austin, I don't I don't necessarily fixate on a number so much. I guess personally, I conceptualize it as was the artist's intent to create an algorithm to which then she could release the reins to the world and produce, you know, X number of outputs that would stand alone as unique pieces of art, but also be part of the whole that she had originally intended from that algorithm. Or is it a piece more like uh, wall that Tyler Hobbs created for proof grail season one, where it's a piece of code based art, but Tyler's intent in creating that piece was to create wall. It wasn't to create an algorithm to generate, you know, a hundred walls. Uh, so that would be an example of, you know, what I think of as short form and then long form would be, you know, Fidenza, his art blocks release or his first art blocks release where, you know, he could create many more you know some people would say probably infinite outputs from that algorithm although he capped it for the art blocks release yeah i think the difference there like to me both of them have a ton of value the wall would be a very technical a show off of your skills and uh, the technical skills that like i would imagine myself it will take me like 10 years to get to that level right but with the other larger collections it's more of an emotional connect connection and the story that i feel more excited about myself as a new artist to approach that type of of collection on this subject dc investor just had a really good tweet and i just found it and i want to read mm -hmm. it and it's the on-chain generative art collector thesis focused on artistic expression unlike most pfps but benefits from similar community and network effects as many can collectively and publicly appreciate and own parts of a single set. Once I understood it was a no brainer. And so this gets to what both of you have mentioned in that, you know, it allows, Sean, you just said, like it's more interesting as an artist because of the flexibility and expression and Austin, you highlighted that, you know, that, larger set could become more valuable because of that network effect in the community of collectors and the variety that the algorithm expresses there. Completely agree. And I hadn't thought about the community element of it too, where everybody who owns a Fidenza sort of, it's like, oh, you, you're a Fidenza, a fellow Fidenza, Fidenza owner. Fidenza Friday. Yeah. yeah, Fidenza Friday, like that kind of a thing. And uh, I, I want to go back to something you said, Tinbane, because I think it's really important. It's actually improving my thinking on this too. So would you consider a generative piece of work or code to be long form, even if it only had, say, 20 outputs? I've noticed these days that some artists have started to create probably what are long form algorithms, but then sell their outputs as one of ones sort of slowly, like once a week releasing them which probably makes a ton of sense for them financially. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just different than launching on Artblocks and having your collection of 800 go all at once. But I look at them, they're in, there is quite a bit of variety. And so as you're saying this, I'm like, well, maybe those 
should also be considered long form because it has more to do with the algorithm. What are your thoughts on on that when it's like a very limited number? Dis- do you have any examples of that? Yeah, so there's one that I really like, and uh, now I'm probably never going to be able to get one, but there, there's one on Object. There's an artist named Lars Wander. He's actually in, in Grailers Dow oh also. God, these are so good. And they're oh. so good. They're called How You See Me. And I think oh. like number 10 and 11 just got released. There's going to be 19. Uh, these ones went for something like f- four, four or 5,000 plus Tezos. And th- these ones had blue backgrounds. They're really nice. But I noticed that. And then there was uh, another artist. I forgot. You probably know this, Tin Bane. It's like uh, they actually did a release on their own website. And each piece had its own auction. And Yeah, Tectonic. Yeah, Tectonic. Uh, and I, I butchered the, artist, the name Kozlowski, I believe. Could yeah, be the and, and their name. username is like some combination of letters from their first and last name. So I, I don't remember it exactly. And that to me struck me a little bit almost like selling one of ones, but part of a, a long form generative algorithm. Both those projects you mentioned are incredible. I guess the in my way I think about this, which is basically just lifted from, you know, Tyler Hobbs essay from last summer, the rise of long form generative art. I think that's the, I think it's called why long form generative art matters, something like that. He has many good essays uh, that I pass off as my own thinking. So it could be any (laughs) of those. (laughs) Uh, In the essay I'm thinking of, I believe he describes kind of like a two part test, you know, test one being or element one being that, you know, the, the outputs go directly into the hands of the collectors, you know, art blocks esque. Uh, and that's, as you've described different from what these other two examples you've given is where an artist, you know, creates an algorithm capable of producing many iterations, but perhaps chooses the best of those iterations to then mint and distribute, uh, on their own time horizon to collectors. And I believe the, Second element that he highlighted was, you know, roughly a hundred outputs for the algorithm. Personally, I don't, I guess, lend as much importance to that second element, just because I do believe an artist could create a long form algorithm with the intent of allowing for that breadth of outputs, but artificially cap the algorithm for a different artistic purpose you know, as part of the concept or statement she's trying to make. So for me, a long form algorithm, I suppose, would be one that goes directly into the hands of the collectors, but also has the artistic intent behind it of being a longer form distribution. So it could be five outputs, but the artist created that algorithm with the intent of allowing for more outputs. It just wasn't the artistic vision to realize those outputs. And an example would be, uh, gosh, I think the project was called 319 uh, on Art Blocks. Artist named Santiago, I believe. I should look it up. But, you know, at a time when Art Blocks was really reducing edition sizes, I think of kind of a conceptual statement. This artist chose to release. I think only 19 iterations of an algorithm that certainly could have supported more. I would still characterize that as a long form algorithm uh, because that was the intent with which the artist created it. It just wasn't the concept that fit the time of release. 
No, that makes a lot of sense. And 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 by that vein, I mean in in theory, the the how you see me's the Lars Wanders, those could still be, you know, he may not or he they may not be cherry picking the outputs. They just may be releasing them more slowly. It looks like an amazing algorithm. Every output's a home run. So I they could just be, you know, output one through ten or I think like the attraction of art blocks is that the long form part as well there is that the the artist doesn't see the output before it gets generated. So you there's proof that this is something that has been generated and there's no cherry picking of some sort. I think that gives to me at least it gives a lot more value to the algorithm than in these cases where the art is fantastic, just the same. But I I would say it's pretty different from the art blocks concept. I, I agree. I agree. I, and and I think, you know, whether or not that distinguishes it as long form or not, the mm-hmm. other thing that I really like about the art blocks concept is there's sort of this ethos of an even playing field that I think really appeals to a lot of people in crypto. Like if I go and I mint a Fidenza, yeah. I have a chance of getting the most rare one. Whereas you know, with these single auctions, I'm competing against people who have far more money than me and, you know, just praying that they're not paying attention or, or something mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> and uh, I think that it touches on a bigger thing in the crypto world uh, that I think, you know, for anybody who was in the 2017, uh, like ICO boom, you could get into any of these and, and make money. But this time around in 2021 was the market heated up almost any good project, I had already sold a bunch of coins to early investors and private deals for far cheaper. And to some extent, this NFT world, it becomes egalitarian again, even on the art side and sort of like, well, I have a chance too. And and some things are getting priced out and, and whatnot. So it's not exactly fair, but I like the concept of everybody paying the same price and perhaps the little person, uh, by that, I mean, someone who has less money has a chance to level up and luck their way into something that's worth a ton and and to me that that is a huge appeal um guys i want to direct the conversation to what i what i admire uh most right now of what you're doing p you're doing the galleries and of course the podcast so i'd like to talk about galleries and with tim bain i'd like to talk about the experience of learning generative art and how that has been because I want to, to kind of showcase the, the process to those who are always also into these two facets of being in this generative art, um, space. So maybe Tim Bain, you want to go first and tell us about the, the creation journey. It's hard to even talk about because I still feel I'm so early on, on that journey. As a beginning artist as well, we need to make it clear that we're, at least for me, I'm doing it for the fun of it. I'm not hoping to sell any pieces or compete with the major artists out there. I'm just doing it for the fun and because I really want to learn about all these algorithms and just for the fun of it, which is nice. And, but it still feels a bit daunting for someone new. I mean, I only approached it seriously because I had the background in coding as I probably would have just thought it was something that is, is not approachable for someone new. So, so I want to 
emphasize that really anyone can learn and create stuff. Yes, absolutely. And it so informs your collecting. I mean, things that I purchased in the past thinking, you know, the art artist had really, you know, struck upon some artistic technique that was groundbreaking. I now realize were more technical skills that the artist really leaned on to create a nice piece of art, but probably something I wouldn't purchase now that I know how, you know, how that sausage was made. There are beautiful, beautiful pieces of generative art that look like a thousand other beautiful pieces of generative art. And to me, that is less interesting than an artist who creates using those same techniques, but makes it very unique. You know, Fidenza is essentially just, just, but is, is, you know, a flow field algorithm with some collision check and really nice colors. And when you break it down into its constituent parts, it's like, okay, well, that's all it is, you know, but it, in execution, it's incredible. You know, it's, it's perfection. And when you think about that in the context of art history, and you think of like Picasso's bowl sketches where he breaks down what it is to sketch this, you know, incredible bowl down to the, you know, the most simple line drawing. And you're like, Oh, that's all it is. But then you look at the completed product and it's a masterpiece. That is what really successful art is not just generative art. It's, you know, using these, techniques with unique artistic expression so as somebody trying to learn to make the art you kind of learn those tools you know you you learn how to shade that circle so to speak or you learn you know the tricks of perspective as analogy to you know drawing and painting in code you learn what you know you might do to make a flow field or you learn what you might do to pack a bunch of circles in there. And then you see like, oh, okay, this is how you make bubbles. And, you know, these hundred thousand bubble sketches on FX hash are just something that, you know, somebody watched a YouTube tutorial. So maybe I'm not going to spend my money on that. And I'm going to spend my money on something that at first glance might not be as visually captivating, but when you reach into what it took to get to that point, it's a masterpiece like sculptor by Peter Pismuk. I'm probably butchering both the name of the art and the artist, but, you know, to me, when I look at that, it's not as visually captivating as some other pieces, but when you look into what he did to make that and how he made that, it's incredible. You know, no number of lifetimes would be enough for me to learn to make that. Uh, so first reason I would, you know, encourage anybody who's into generative art to at least try to learn a bit superficially on how that's made is just to inform your collecting. And so you don't waste money, not waste, but you don't spend money on something that's not as special as you think it might be. I totally echo this point. Um, it's funny because the, some pieces that looked very attractive before I knew anything about algorithms now look run of the mill while some that I really had no interesting uh, or seemed very like why would that be art you know now i understand where is it coming from what what the artist has done with the code and the algorithm and it becomes attractive you know but i know that if i show it to my mom or to someone who's not into this it will be something like is that art or 
what's the point? Whereas Afedansa, I think, or, or even some of the more colorful, even the chromic squiggles, people like them. And this is something maybe we can get into the future of generative art and the value. Is it going to be more for those pieces that are more palatable to, to the general public? Or would it be the ones that the nerds can understand and value? To me, that is a big question. Like I would lean more towards probably those kind of pieces where the general public would find interesting and beautiful. But I don't know what you think about it. Yeah, I have some thoughts on this. So first of all, thanks for sharing your, your artist journey. And that makes a lot of sense. And now I'm like, oh, maybe I should start learning this so I can be a better collector too. <laughs> um, but you're right. I, I, I'm going to use analogy for sports because I think this, this applies. I played a lot of sports growing up, basketball, tennis. And I think that the, the best people, the masters, they make it look really easy. But if you play the sport, you understand just how solid and amazing their fundamentals are and how consistent they are with that. Uh, but for the person who may not have as much knowledge about that sport, they, you just, it, 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 it's like almost poetic with the way that they perform. And I think to your question, John, about what the best works will be. Similarly, I think the best works will be like the LeBron James, right? You have your sport that has mass appeal, almost global appeal for whatever reason, it's gotten to that point. And maybe an analogy is like the flow fields with Tyler Hobbs and Fidenza. Like the flow fields are an algorithm that reminds people of nature and things that they've seen and grow up with. Um, whereas something more technical, I think will have its own place, but maybe that's like uh, a sport that is less known, but people who are really into it appreciate it. And I think in the generative art world, I think of gazers where gazers hold a lot of value. I'm like, I still have no idea what's going on there. And it's it's hard for me to pull the trigger because I just don't understand it. But yeah, I think that there will be a place for the technical, but it probably won't hit at least the, the same type of attention appeal for some of these that are a little more designed for mass market. It's funny to think about mass market being like a thousand iterations when you think of that in terms of like an action, not the, not the crypto market, but like an actual market. I mean, that's nothing. That's a tiny amount in terms of, you know, global consumption. But for art, it's still, you know, for an artist to put out a thousand pieces of work, that's a lot of work from an artist. So it, you have to think about it through both lenses. I think there'll be artists like Keith Haring or David Hockney where, you know, the general public can appreciate what their work looks like. You know, they look at that and they say, that looks nice. That's, you know, a guy in a pool or a little colorful, you know, blob man. And maybe it's, you know, iconic enough where they see those things and they have that emotional reaction to it on a very surface level. But then there are going to be some artists like, Basquiat or you know, some of these more challenging artists and both can attain great success. It's just, you know, one of the great things about NFTs is it allows these artists to find their collector bases. And that's probably, you know, something important that maybe we haven't touched on is, you know, so many of these general artists were just toiling in obscurity forever. It was just not a commercially viable pursuit forever until NFTs. And now it's the perfect use case. Like I would challenge anybody to present a better use case for, you know, 
art are NFTs than generative art on the blockchain. I mean, it's it's that's well one of the reasons I'm just so so confident in art blocks and everything that will come from it is because there just isn't a better fit for this technology in art. Uh, I I 100% agree. I mean, it, it is the perfect. When you say art, I would extend that beyond even just visual art. Like right now, this is the best use case that I've seen for blockchain that provides a really unique user experience, putting it in kind of tech product terms. And I think people feel that. And I I, I don't want to sound like a snob, but like pretty much all I think about is long form generative art now because <laughs> I'm like... This to me is like the pinnacle and I could get and tell you reasons why, but that's also why we're focusing the podcast there. And I'm, I believe people will slowly kind of move into that conclusion as well. Uh, or at least enough people that it'll be quite a big thing. Do we have a bad boy of generative art for mass appeal? <laughs> Feels like that one is missing, right? <laughs> that would be great thinking of like in in reading that uh, 12 million dollar stuff shark book where they talk about those personalities and mm -hmm. what that does for an artist's career i definitely was thinking about that too i know pock for stealing everybody's money <laughs> like, be, yeah. not generative <laughs> art but whatever that is yeah, we, we need a generative artist to come out of prison being like, you know, they made all their gen art in prison. It's like the, the bad boy who turned around type of a story, which I, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but uh, Drifter Shoots, who is a huge uh, NFT photographer for people who are not familiar, he seems to have somewhat of a like, it's like a turnaround story. It's not like bad boy, but it's like, there's something interesting about that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great story. I shouldn't say Pox stole everybody's money. Is <laughs> that's just a, a meme right now, I think, because they're working on whatever they're working on. I'm a holder. Talks great, but uh, <laughs> it, it's tough, you know, when we're so early in a space, I think, to even know what these personalities will be. You know, who's going to be there of these artists in four or five or 40 or 50 years? Yeah, it's hard to say. And it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about as well. So, like you mentioned, that it's all about it's all you think about. And I think one interesting thing that I've and I've I know you're experimenting a lot with galleries. And one thing I noticed is that galleries are used by people to showcase their collections, but also by people who are doing a lot of curation and kind of just doing research about. Uh, projects and showcasing items that they might not necessarily own, but somehow it's some kind of game for them or hobby. And there's a ton of these extremely well curated galleries on DECA, for example. So I'd love to know what your thoughts are. I know you have a lot of opinions on that topic. Yeah, yeah, I do. And uh, some predictions. I'm, I'm trying to get in the habit of predicting things in public. So you know, we'll see, we'll see if I'm, <laughs> I'm right. Hopefully I don't end up with too much egg on my face. Uh, so there's a couple of levels with the galleries. I think it'll be helpful to discuss how I fell into it. Uh, initially with the podcast, I really 
like started getting into this long form generative art and I wanted to go and buy things, say like a memories of a Chilin or a ringers. Oh, I don't have enough money for ringers, but you know, and I was like, well, when the market cools off, I want to have targets and be able to say, this is a good deal for a certain piece. And they're unlike uh, PFPs where you have like a golden moon bird or something, it's not so obvious which traits are more valuable or why, or how they impact the visual appeal of that piece. And so the podcast genesis was I'm having this problem figuring out what I want. Maybe other people are too. So why don't like we just dive into it and put out some content. And then the next logical step was, well, you know, I love this gen art because I've forced myself to look at it so much as I was trying to figure out what's more valuable or not. And and so maybe other people will too. And so, you know, I didn't start this with a lot of uh, really any commercial intent. It was more like this stuff is so fun and I just like looking at it and I want to know more about it. And so I thought, well, you know, the way I listen to podcasts is mostly in audio, but people should really see these. How can we supplement the audio in a way? And you could have done a traditional website, but these DECA galleries were being created. And DECA, for people who don't know, it's an online gallery company where you can put up NFTs. And they have these freestyle galleries, which are more like document editors, more like Microsoft Word or, or Photoshop in that you can sort of write text in different ways and, and make pictures smaller and larger and change backgrounds and stuff like that. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe this would be a good way to have essentially a summary for our episodes and then people can still see the art. And then as you go through these different art pieces, I realized that like, so initially I was just trying to communicate something with these galleries. I wanted people to see, okay, if you have this trait in a Fidenza, like what does it mean to be a spiral or what does it mean to be a micro uniform and just show people visually? Because normally what happens is you go and open C and it's typically sorted by whatever is selling for the cheapest. And it makes it hard to distinguish what really the difference is from these traits. So initially it was just an educational tool that i felt like it was nft native and then for our podcast i thought you know this could be on our brand we're like a web3 nft thing it's like innovative to use this tool to showcase what we're doing but then as i started doing it i realized that it's it's a lot of fun to put these things together and take a look at it and and tinker with it i imagine tin bane that maybe it's also fun to create your generative algorithm see the output tinker with it see how it changes. And then I started thinking about, okay, a lot of people are creating these galleries who don't have podcasts, who don't have some kind of an educational intent the way that I did. So I'm like, well, why are people doing this? And so it's fun to put it together. It's fun to see people looking at them, reacting at them. And then I also started reading that $12 million shark book. Admittedly, I've only gotten through the first chapter, but he basically lays out his whole thesis in, in the first chapter, as most good books do. And I realized that curation is just a huge part of this art world. And even though that we are in this infinite, you know, you stretch things out when you go digital. So basically, we're going to have millions and millions of billions of generative art in the next, say, 20 years, right? As more and more people come on, you can just crank these out. And so, but you're still constrained by your attention. So in the traditional art world, the constraint was physical. You can only have so many pieces of art in the gallery. So you need a curator to help pick the best ones that both give a good experience for the viewers and potentially sell. Now you can have far more cure. Anybody can be a curator now because you can throw up a digital gallery and use any NFT. 
right? But the curation quality will still matter because the limitation now becomes humans' attention. It's still not infinite, even though the digital world is infinite. And so I think that there's going to be a big role for curation in the discovery and sale of art NFTs. And if you think about the way we do it right now, it's somebody tells you about it or the artist tweets about it or you know, you hear about an Artblocks release and, and I guess Artblocks is curating, but I think we're going to sort of decentralize that curation process. And I think that there's going to be a, a whole art that emerges from curation. Uh, and I'm trying to learn that a little bit is how do you arrange things? What kind of colors go well together? Even something as simple as, you know, if you go to get perfume or, or cologne at a store and you you spray one and you smell it and then they give you some like coffee beans to almost like cleanse your nose or like a palate cleanser well what's the equivalent of that for art if i want to display three or four art pieces on my digital gallery should i have a palate cleanser to go then on the next set i don't know but i i think it's it could get quite sophisticated oh i love everything you just said about that and when you think about a physical gallery there is that palette cleanser you know it's typically on white or off-white walls with some negative space so that your visual field has a chance to rest and you can appreciate each work that's excellent i love that and it sounds like you're doing something not terribly different than what proof is trying to achieve although on a more individualized level i mean proof being as kevin always says curation with a point of view you mean with like the the deep dives on collections or just curating in general i mean more just kind of the ethos behind what the collective and the company proof has become it sounds like what they really want to be is a media company that curates with the idea of we want these artists to be showcased and we want these folks to be successful with our collector base, which we have also curated. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think for me, I think everybody to some extent curates with a, a point of view. It's sort of like, what what is your point of view? And, you know, one thing that has, this conversation has upgraded my point of view, Tin Bane, in the sense that, now I'm going to think a lot more about the technical side, right? And for us, you know, we, you're right, we, we are curating with a point of view. And my point of view is like long form generative art is sort of one of the, the highest forms of uh, NFT art right now. Um, they're all great, but to me, I can go into why I have a point of view about that. And then I have a point of view around artists and certain collections as well. And those are the ones that we pick to do our deep dives into the podcast and, and create galleries around. So, so you're right, 100%. I think you are kind of getting a point of view as well. And then sort of parallel to that or tangential to that is how you actually go about in curating, how you deliver that message. And I forget the, there's like a marketing saying, right? Like the medium is the message. So how does the message change now when you have these sort of unlimited virtual online galleries uh, versus a, a traditional art gallery? Uh, maybe it doesn't much, but it's, it's uh, I don't, I haven't fully formed the ideas, but there's something around that, that I think could start to grow and, and become a much larger part of the ecosystem. When you can scan my brain, and then do a neuroscientific analysis of my brain and then curate based on what you've discovered in that analysis you you, you have me as a as a uh, user forever 
Well, I may not need to scan your brain. I may be able to scan your wallets and see what NFTs you collect. <laughs> and but get I want to my brain scanned. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and there are certain things like I've noticed. So pa certain patterns, like, I, you, you know, you mentioned the neon. Uh, the reason I did that is I've noticed that I am drawn to pieces that have dark or black backgrounds, but then bright colors. And in yeah. general, I like dark backgrounds. So all of our galleries and collectors corner have dark backgrounds right now. And I'm like, there's another level to this that can make it more aesthetically pleasing. And I'm trying to learn and, and figure that out. Actually, I'm, I'm hoping to get a few curators on like some of the art blocks curators and stuff on episodes. There's a few folks in Graylers who have gotten picked as like community curators for art block stuff. Yeah. And uh, other things like with uh, William Upon's anti-cyclones, uh, which uh, for listeners is a, a, a recent long form generative art project that came out on uh, art blocks. Like there's one of the palettes is called Ada. And if you look at it, it's, it's a sort of like the fire pattern it has like oranges and yellows that mix. And I find that very captivating. And I was like, why? And I was like, well, in real life, I really like looking at fires too. Like you could just stare at a fire all day. I don't know if you've ever done that. And I think that there are certain patterns that I'm starting to notice that I like, and I think a lot of the crowd also likes. Those are excellent insights. I, I need to go and go and think about this in a dark room for a while or in a black, I put myself on a black background to really appreciate what you've said, because yeah, you speak in terms of upgrading thinking. I, I need to upgrade my uh, curation. It sounds like you're doing it right now. That's, you know, one other thing I'd want to say is right now in this space, it's so cool because people are so accessible. You know, Jean, you were talking about going to token art and talking to these artists who are, I mean, maybe yes the generative art world is not that big yet but a lot of these people are masters at their craft like they're really really good that's like being able to go and and talk to like picasso which by the way i i think hobbes is, is basically picasso i i went on his blog his work is just unbelievable i mean and the, the range of what he does and so many of them they're so good so many techniques i was blown away by that tying into that just uh, because i just realized Earlier, I mentioned that I wouldn't know what to speak about if I went to talk to, like, say, the Doodles CEO or founder, you know, like, okay, it's great, made a big collection, successful, but I think it's less a reflection on the type of person or character, whether I find them interesting or not. It's just that those people have released a collection, but they haven't said anything about themselves, whereas the generative artists drew their art. I feel are expressing a lot more about themselves and their way of thinking. And one difference between generative art and other types of art that I've seen is that artists tend to write an essay about their project, right? Whereas traditional artists sometimes tend to not say anything about their art and it's up to the people to interpret. I love that aspect of like sharing because I, I'm into blogging. I by default share everything. I learn something, I share it, I write about it. So I really connect with artists who create something and then go into the detail of at least the thought process of why they created it and how. And then you can still interpret the the output as you wish. It can still evoke different emotions and different people. But that window to the to the mind and soul of the artist is pretty unique. I feel. John, you've spoken a couple times about that uh, token art event during NFT NYC. Was it 
and you mentioned that you felt like you could talk with these artists, not just that you had the access to speak with them, which is exceptional in of itself, but that you, in conversation with them, realized they were just really cool people outside of being amazing artists. Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel if you had gone to, let's say there was a meetup with all of the Proof Grails artists, and you know, in there, there are a few generative artists, and then there are a lot of other artists that don't do generative work. Do you feel there's something in the, in kind of the character of an individual who gravitates towards generative art that creates this common denominator for conversation with you that might not be present for some of these other artistic forms? And the other artistic forms would be like painters or... Yeah, somebody's on Procreate or, you know, uh -huh. a photographer or, or, you know, whatever it might be. I'm less interested in like the differences between those than the commonality between you and a generative artist, perhaps in their, you know, typical way of thinking, knowing that, you know, generative artists are varied individuals and they're all unique. But there is a there is something, you know, they did do that coding, you know. This could be a lot of like based on my past and biases that. I mentioned earlier, like the art and art as painting and drawing felt like I'm shut out of that world. So probably I carry a bit of that if I had to approach a painter, like I would feel like I'm not at his level or there's not going to be a matching thing. Whereas with creative coders, I studied computer science. I know I'm creative. And I'm very interested and I've been doing podcasts. I'm interested in interviewing people, learning about them. And what's the first thing? Like literally you walk up to an artist and you say, Oh, this is nice. How did you come up with the idea to create it? You know, and they're going to launch into like, I was walking in the woods. I saw some tree. I wanted to mimic it. Like that's very easy, very easy conversation, right? So to me, it's very easy to dig deep into a creative artist mode of thinking. You know, one thing I want to say that I love about this space is in, in six months, I have gone to now build a network of really super interesting people. Like I'm talking to the both of you and I'm sure you guys have all sorts of elements of your life that I don't even know about, but we have this common interest in NFTs and generative art. And in that way, I would extend what you're saying, Tim Bain and Jean, to beyond just the artists. It's like this whole community that it has this common passion. And I find that to be really fun and, and cool. I think there's also some level of like the conversations you, you see in the art blogs discord and grailers. They're kind of more mostly intellectual about an output of an algorithm or maybe some how to do things about some book, about some video about, but it's mostly very like about some way of doing things. And that's what interests me. Like why do things work this way and how do we do them? Whereas in other discords, it's about the price and what's the next drop? What's the, how do I get access whitelist to another collection? And that gets boring after a while. You know? Totally. Yeah, that is what makes block talk so fun. It is because it, people still do discuss price and get excited. You know, it's degening with a point of view. Like mm -hmm. people yeah. get excited when a project pumps, but then even if a project's not pumping, everybody's fine just sitting around talking about the, the artistic merit. And to have a space where you can do that, like, Austin, that's exactly, exactly right. Like everybody 
participating in that space has self-selected to talk about crypto art in their free time. And that's an exceptional thing. Yeah. And it takes a certain type of person to even make their way into that discord. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so it also self-selects for people who tend to be pretty high achievers. And, you know, a lot of people are in tech, but some people come from like finance or different backgrounds. Like they're dentists, they're like other doctors, you know, there's all sorts of stuff, which I think is, is really, really cool. And, you know, I, I want to make this case because I know we're like coming up on time for for why generative art and I'm, I'm going to write a blog post about this. But what you mentioned there also, I think, is really important is that there's some really intrinsic, interesting stuff going on with the art beyond the price. So even if the prices are not doing well, uh, there's no team like you have with these profile picture projects that is sort of expected to drive value back to that project. Um, you can just enjoy the art intrinsically. Even if your your bags are down, you can be like, well, like I can geek out on these techniques and this artist and whatnot. And so I, I found myself getting exhausted initially with like the moonbirds and the yuga stuff because I was constantly having to figure out like what's going on with my investment. Whereas the art stuff, it was like, okay, I bought it, I'm done. And I could just kind of relax and appreciate it for what it was. And so that was my initial just feeling that, okay, I, I'm getting more interested in art. And then for a lot of the reasons we talked about, uh, I got more and more interested into the generative art because it was more really blockchain native and it felt more almost like cyberpunk and more within the culture. And then why I got interested in these mints where, you know, it's a mint of 800 long form, like you could get something just totally unexpected and rare and that's exciting. And then the ability to trade early on and try to find like the diamonds in the rough and for a lot of reasons, I just ended up in long form. Well, not a lot. Those are the reasons I ended up in long form generative art. It just felt like a superior user experience and more fun for me for all of those reasons. I'm curious to hear what, what you all think. And perhaps if there are other elements of NFT art, whether it's short form generative or non-generative that you guys also are really excited about. I can't say that I, I'm in it purely for the art. When I would buy things on Hen last summer on Tez for like, you know, 0.5 Tez or whatever, that I was in it purely for the art. I had no intention of ever selling any of those things. I just liked the way they looked. The price was, you know, negligible. So why not? Art blocks, you know, as, as much as I do buy something because I love the art, it is an investment and it's still not great when your bags are down, like you've mentioned. But what is there, even when your bags are down, is so spectacular that as you've hit upon it, it's so much easier to stomach a downturn if you're looking at something beautiful that you love. You know, just like I would purchase a beautiful piece of art to hang in my house in the traditional art world, not me, because I didn't do that before, but, you know, folks did that forever. You know, I'm sure they wanted to make money on that even if they never planned on selling it, they wanted that artist to do well and they wanted that to appreciate and value for posterity or whatever. We're not immune from those feelings just because we like the art. Why generative art for me is it is that marriage of those traditional artistic sentiments of collecting, of watching an artist's career unfold in the perfect marriage with blockchain technology in a way that you just don't get in other NFT art forms so far. I mean, 
it could be the case that, you know, quantum builds generative art photography in a way where you can get that similar feel. And it could be the case that some PFP collection comes along and the art is so good that you can appreciate it for the art itself. But I haven't seen any of that. I've only seen that in, as you've said, long form generative art is, you know, the pinnacle expression of the technology so far. And I think even if the PFP came along, they're not typically written in code, right? There is an image that was already predetermined and they're randomly combined, but it's not code that is generating all of the visual output, which I think is really interesting and and different. Yeah. To have a code-based piece of art in a code-based world is is a special feeling. Right. And then you combine that with a bunch of code-based people who are now crazy rich and it makes sense what, what's happening. <laughs> yeah, it all makes sense on Block Talk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really agree with both of you. So for me, I'm bullish and I'm excited about the space because it's something that excites me from the learning perspective. I'm really thirsty for knowledge. And I think anyone investing big money in art blocks right now would be irresponsible to say or to feel that he's in it just for the art. I don't think none of us know enough about or can predict the future to responsibly make a big investment just for the art and art blocks. But as you mentioned, like I have a lot of PFPs and like their PFPs. And the, fun, the funny thing is that we say there's no utility in the art. Well, for me, there's a lot more utility in the generative art I own because even when the markets are down and I have nothing to do in the trading and investing sense, I'm going to open up any of the generative art pieces I own and I can spend the rest of the week just digging into the trades or how to create stuff and try to mimic it myself or create a gallery as P is doing investigating all the traits and their popularity over time. There's so much depth to go into each project that it's far more interesting than a PFP. And there's not to say that I don't like PFPs. It's just that balance of community, art for art's sake, and the monetary investment is extremely appealing for me in generative art. Austin's thinking on this is so good because it's like, your curation process is the utility that you've created in yourself to appreciate not just your art, but you know, there are lots of pieces in your deck of galleries. I'd say probably the majority you have a gallery dedicated to what you own, but then you have many other galleries that are art other people owns, but you're creating utility for yourself with that art. It doesn't, you know, regardless of, you know, copyright law or whatever, you found a way to appreciate this art and share that appreciation that isn't dependent on some team building or grinding or airdrops or anything like that. It's, it's intrinsic. That to me is what gives you relief. I mean, I think PFPs probably have more upside. I think the risk reward is probably higher on PFPs, but you don't have as much control over your investment, so to speak, in the sense that it's dynamic. Like you can put whatever $20,000 into a moonbird. And the value of that is in large part going to be determined by what the team does in the future. Whereas you can put $20,000 into a squiggle. And if you've done your research, then you can feel pretty confident that, okay, this is like a fairly good investment. And you don't, now you just let the market play out. 
I mean, in both cases, you don't really have control over what the market decides, but it just feels like there's less of this unknown variable of other humans making decisions that could change what happens to the intrinsic value of that item. Uh, I'm probably not being as articulate, but again, I, I back into the feeling. I just felt more relief and like I didn't have to worry about buying the art stuff compared to some of the PFPs. But in simple terms, we can always compare to the traditional art world and how much the prices go for traditional art pieces that are even similar to generative art, right? So you have a frame of reference, where, whereas with PFPs, no frame of reference whatsoever. Yeah, although I think the traditional art world is extremely undervaluing uh, NFT art. And uh, I, I can tell you guys why, but I also want to be cognizant of time here. Yeah, I do so have a cutoff pretty soon. I got a kid that's got to go to school. Yeah, well, I, 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 I actually, let me just tell you super fast. I can tell you literally <laughs> like, like 90 seconds. I want to hear it all. The concept is the analogy is to Uber. So there is this famous kind of like business school study. There's a business school professor at NYU, which is a Stern, one of the best business schools in the country. And they were making the argument, it was probably 10 years ago, that Uber was like way overvalued in the private markets because the taxi cab industry, Uber was valued like just as much or if not more than the whole taxi cab industry. And they were like, this doesn't make sense. And that's the analogy I would give right now to traditional art. They're saying, oh, Fidens is selling for like $300,000. And like, that's, that's like way too high. But what that professor, the mistake they made, and they admitted it later, was that Uber grew the market substantially. That it, the analogy was not the taxi cab market. It was this new market that Uber was creating. And I think similarly with everything going digital, with generative art, um, especially these highly technical, amazing works being uh, status symbols and, and flexes uh, and uh, really PFPs as well. Uh, but I think that from comparing it to the traditional art market doesn't make sense because it's not the traditional art market. And if, if we are right, there will be so many more people looking at these things and wanting them that I think the overall market size could be substantially larger than the traditional art market, in which case some of these prices do make sense or they may even be cheap. Such a prescient point, because how many of us were buying fine art before it? I mean, you said yourself, $500 was too much for fine art for you. back. Yeah, exactly. Then, right? So, you know, just among the three people on this podcast, the, the, the technology grew the market. But the, the Uber mistake has been done countless times, even with the PC, you know, the personal computer. Yeah. There were those kinds of predictions. Why would anyone want a PC. Sure, or the internet. I'm sure that was another one, right? Phones, <laughs> smartphones. You name it. Cool. So let's wrap up so Tim Bain can take his kids to school. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both so much for talking with me. This has been amazing. It has. Yeah. Been. Hey, where, where can people find you, Tim Bain? And, and uh, eventually they're going to need to find your art. So where That's do people right. want to find you? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, at Tim Bain on Twitter's best spot. I'm 10 Bane with some numbers on Discord. I'm a community leader in the Artblocks Discord, so you can definitely find me there. Proof, Grailers. I do want to shout out the Grailers Gen Art Academy. For anybody out there who's just getting into learning generative art or maybe, you know, has already started but is looking for a community, it's still pretty small. But I will say the quality, you know, myself excluded, the quality of individuals there who are willing to provide input 
if you're making a good faith effort and creating something uh, is really high. I mean, you'll, you'll have like, I asked a question the other day in the Grayler's Gen Art Academy and Lauren Bedner, he, you know, answered, you know, Art Block's curated artist, one of the probably biggest artists in the crypto space last year, you know, he answered my question, which is insane. So definitely want to shout out the Grayler's you know, Gen Art Academy. But yeah, that's where you can find me at Tenbane. How about you, Austin? And the, the Gen Art Academy is the Gen Art School channel on Grayler's. Yeah, right? let me. Yeah, I'm right? <laughs> just saying saying words. Uh, I didn't know about it actually. So thanks. Really, for didn't my I? Oh, I thought you <laughs> Why did I say Gen Art Academy? Says the Academy, the Gen Art School channel. Yeah, yeah. There's two. There's a Gen Art School and a Gen Art Education. But the school is where I think people are coding. And yeah, it's, it's crazy because you have these amazing generative artists who have been doing this for decades. And, and you know, so, sorry, one last plug for the gen art world. So I've been doing research into these artists for our podcast, and a lot of them open source all their work. You know, they're not trying to hide their secrets and they'll help you out. And, I, I you know, Golid, who did Archetypes, and Matt Delorier, who did Meridian and Subscapes, both have extensive GitHub repositories where you can go and grab whatever you want from there. So that's another thing that's awesome about the, the culture of gen art right now. And hopefully it stays this way. Yeah, Manolo Gamboa, like the, the goat of all goats in generative art basically doesn't sell work just you know posts on twitter and behance and open source repositories just incredible work who is that he usually just goes by manolo i think on most of the socials but it's uh if i'm pronouncing it correctly manolo gamboa naon i believe oh. a south american artist mm -hmm. i didn't even know about that uh oh, really really incredible work uh not no long form work to my knowledge, uh, but really, you know, somebody that like your favorite generative artists, favorite generative artist. Got it. I know you're going to run. So I'm at Aston cloud on Twitter and the podcast is collectors corner, which is at collectors underscore X, Y, Z on Twitter and also www.collectorscorner.xyz. And for anyone listening, would love to, happy to like chat with me anytime reach out i'm also at aston cloud on on discord you can just at me anywhere in artblocks discord and like i'll find you awesome thanks guys for making the time and awesome conversation thank you very much thank you john for the opportunity and making it happen austin thank you for your thoughts yeah then thanks thanks for working with the schedules guys i appreciate that too and that's not easy all right, that's a wrap for today. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope that got you interested into generative art or if you were already interested and in collecting generative art, maybe you found some new angles to your generative art experience. And please let me know if you would like to see more content of this sort. You can reach out to me at mastermindfm on Twitter. And if you like the content I've been putting out, please do leave a five-star review on iTunes. That would be extremely helpful and encouraging. And if not, I'll see you in the next episode. Have a nice week.